Olas. So this morning we'll move on to the next of the, the greats, and that is great mudita, great empathetic joy, simply great joy. But I'd like to back up briefly just to see the flow, the context, the sequence here. As we return to the cultivation of immeasurable loving kindness, and then on to immeasurable compassion, empathetic joy, and then the culmination, as you're now very familiar, the culmination in immeasurable equanimity, that great serenity, that great sense of equality, of evenness, of imperturbability, inner calm. And you'll certainly remember that among the four immeasurables, the false facsimile, or the near enemy of equanimity, is aloof indifference. Right? Aloof indifference. That you found, in a manner of speaking, your own separate peace. So the world may be going to a hell in a handbasket. And there may be corruption and misery and distress and evil all around you. But part of you kind of feels that's other people's problems. They're responsible for it. They did it to themselves. I'm not party to that. And I have found a really nice place, my own separate peace. I'm really okay. The world isn't, but I figured it out. How to maintain a sense of equilibrium, of balance, of serenity, a sense of well-being, even in a world that is imbalanced, turbulent, and dysfunctional and suffering. So one can see how a kind of aloof indifference, a kind of a sense of separation, almost dissociation from the world around could occur. And every time you open your eyes and you look around, you check the media and say, yep, that's what I thought it was, and go right back in. Like, you know, like the little groundhog that pops up, so, oh, still winter, and they just go down. You know. No thank you. No thank you. So that really could be, one could see how that could just lead you straight to an, a one-way exit, irreversible exit. No thank you to all of samsara. I've tasted your goods. There's not, no appeal. If you haven't figured that out yet, well, wake up, because I have, and I know what to do. Get out. You know, achieve your own liberation. Be normal, and you see, really, it's possible. You're so close, in a way. And you could say, well, that certainly is an option. So then you'll remember also, among the four immeasurables, what is the, within the four immeasurables, what is the remedy? What restores your balance, brings you back onto the path when your equanimity falls, goes astray, falls to its false facsimile? Of course, it's compassion. It's compassion. It is opening your eyes, not only to your own suffering, you've already done that, but now really opening your eyes opening your heart to the whole world around you. And with that sense, if your eyes are clearly open, that sense of just undeniable intrinsic entanglement that you just can't authentically pretend as if somehow you're not a participant, you're not involved. You had nothing to do with all that out there. <clears throat> that sense of kinship, that sense of relationship, which is so mightily emphasized in the Mahayana tradition of all sentient beings having been our mothers, our fathers, children, siblings, and so on. And so it kind of just kind of floods in on you that maybe your own escape is not 
a viable option after all. There's just something so profoundly inauthentic and wrong about turning your back on all sentient beings when you might actually be able to do some great good. And so to ignite, to arouse, to enhance and empower <clears throat> that sense of kinship, that sense of responsibility, then you move directly to great compassion. So it's very seamless, isn't it? Really seamless. And of course, for that to be truly great compassion, it's got to have the equanimity. You can't have a bit of great compassion here, but then only medium or small compassion there. Then it's not great compassion, right? It's got to be coming from a much deeper space that's already starting with an alluvial plane, so to speak, an even playing board. And the playing board is not only, as we see in the Shravagayana, not only the sense that every sentient being I encounter deserves to be treated with the same affection, warmth, kindness, and respect, because they, every single one has Buddha nature, everyone has the capacity for enlightenment. Not only that, because you may have realized that already in the great, kind of the immeasurable equanimity, but it's something beyond that. And that is dakshenyamba, oh, and that is the equality of self and other. The quality of self and other, dakshenyamba. The quality of self and other. And that is just this searing, painful awareness, the recognition that your own well-being is no more important than anybody else's. And of course, that means it's also no less important than anyone else's. But that means that if you're going to be attending to reality, you really have to attend to the whole of reality. You have to liberate everyone. Because there's no one that you can say, this one's more deserving, this one's less deserving. That includes yourself. No less deserving, no more deserving. And therefore, since we're all of a piece, we're all entangled, we're all so profoundly interrelated that to speak of us, any of us, in isolation, as somehow abstracted from, divorced from, the whole fabric of reality, is to talk about a complete fiction, something that doesn't exist at all, not even nominally. Independent, inherently, independent, inherently existent sentient beings don't exist at all. So the notion that I, I as someone separate, autonomous, that I shall go for my own liberation and hope everybody else works it out, being an island unto themselves, uh, is delusional. I mean, what else do you call it when you're striving for the liberation of something or someone that doesn't exist? You in isolation, you separate. Don't exist at all. So exactly what are you talking about here? What was all your spiritual training about if now you're aspiring for the liberation of something that doesn't exist at all? So it's just being realistic, but more deeply realistic. And it takes you into the realm of great compassion, where it's beyond an aspiration, as you previously already have had, or been moved by a deep sense of the spirit of emergence, which is not simply a desire, it's a resolve, right? This resolve to emerge from samsara, and emerge towards nirvana, towards authenticity, towards freedom, to liberation. That's already there. So you had not previously not only an aspiration for your own liberation, but you really taking this on, knowing who else is going to do it. If I don't take responsibility for my own liberation, who am I going to leave it to? My guru, or my wife, or husband, or best friend? You know, nobody's going to do it. So it's either me or no one can actually take on the responsibility. So of course, you've already done that. You recognize no one's going to do it for you. No one can do it for you. And so it's either you take responsibility or no one does, which means then you're stuck. But now you see in this entanglement, in this just more authentic view that you simply cannot extract an isolated individual out of the fabric of reality and then meaningfully strive or resolve to achieve liberation for that one 
while disentangling yourself, cutting the cords with everyone else. It just uh, doesn't make any sense, frankly. It's not so much a matter of deep altruism, it just doesn't make any sense. And so this great compassion arises, and with a similar resolve for all sentient beings as you've already had for yourself. So may we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. But at first glance, that there's when one immediately sees there's so much that can be done, because there's so much suffering, but so many causes of suffering that are evident. You don't have to be a Sherlock. You don't have to be some brilliant investigator. You can see just how much conflict in there is there in the world that could be resolved with wise peacemakers who have creativity, with vision. They could come on, at least here and there, create peace, harmony, mutual understanding, where thus far it's just been bitterness, antagonism, resentment, and violence. So blessed are the peacemakers. You can say, oh, I could do that. Maybe I could work in diplomacy. Maybe I could work for the UN. Maybe I could work for the State Department. Maybe I could work for UNICEF. There's so much poverty in the world. There's so much sickness in the world. Now we see this Ebola virus. Now they're estimating maybe a million people will die. A little bit slow in the uptake, apparently, from the developed countries and attending to that. But, you know, but the million people isn't in Europe or America, so it's pretty bearable. Is off there in the dark continent, you know, over there, not where we are. So one sees that's intolerable. And so then one may be motivated with great compassion to go out into medicine, to hear, to for in the areas of poverty, environmental de- degradation, strife, conflict, bigotry, intolerance, and so forth. And say, this is it, this is my expression, this is this is what I can do. We're all seeing this. I'm going to get a lot of help here because I'm identifying suffering and causes of suffering that are not hidden. This is not a big secret. A lot of people are aware of this. I can work with large institutions that have good hearts, good motivation, ideals. I can join hands with a lot of people here. I can do, I can contribute. And that's good. That's good. And then you have your lighter moments recognizing that there is in fact happiness in this world. There's joy in this world. And you may be moving more towards the upside, and that is to great loving-kindness. Thinking, how could we bring about greater well-being, greater prosperity, greater education, greater health, greater harmony, greater good. Greater good. The greater good for humanity and in our entanglement with the rest of the sentient beings on our planet. So you may move then more in very constructive ways, positive ways. Better education, better agriculture, better this, better that. And really trying to improve things in a very positive, visionary way, you know, revolutionary way, so that really we can explore greater dimensions of, of well-being and happiness for the individual, for humanity, for all other species, that we're not wiping them out, but actually you know, really tending the environment, the ecosphere, maintaining the balance, trying to undo the damage we've done. So that would be great loving-kindness. It's a lot of good there, a lot of good there. But now we move to the third one, and it brings it up a notch. It raises the bar again. And I want to, we'll do the meditation, but just one phrase, the first phrase I'd like to unpack or front-load the meditation so when we're actually doing the meditation, I won't have to talk so much. I won't be giving a Dharma talk in the meditation. You just do the meditation, right? Because in classic strategy in Buddhism, there's hearing, thinking, and then meditation. You hear something new, you learn something, and then you reflect upon it. You weave it into your mind, you assess it, you evaluate it, you investigate it. 
You see whether it makes sense or not, whether it's of value or not. And then when you come to a decisive conclusion, takchupa it's called, you cut the cord, you cut the cord of, of uncertainty, vacillation, and so forth. You say, that's it, that's it. Then you're ready to meditate. Then you really take it in, you absorb it, you drink it in, you let it assimilate into the very fibers of your being. And so I want to get a little bit of hearing and reflection before the meditation. So when it comes to meditation time, we're actually meditating and not just listening to Dharma talk. Right? And so this great mudita, great joy. You recall among the four immeasurables, this was the only one that was an emotion. Remember? Compassion was an aspiration, not an emotion. Loving kindness, aspiration, not an emotion. Equanimity, equanimity, trying to come to a sense of even-heartedness, even-mindedness. Right? But in the great mudita, great empathetic joy, it turns once again to a question, an aspiration, and a resolve, and then a supplication. That's the classic format. But once again, this great mudita is more than simply empathetic joy, taking delight. It is an aspiration. And so I want to give in English, Tibetan and English, because I really checked it out, make sure I get it right. Because this is a classic liturgy, uh, which can be turned into, I think, an enormously potential transformative meditation. Especially if we don't just whip right through it chanting, but actually linger. And here is the, again, it, start, it starts, you know how it's going to start with a question, which is not a rhetorical question, a very real question, a very deep question. But here it is in Tibetan, so I'll say it slowly. You might want to write it down because I haven't written it down. But I just told you what it is in Tibetan. So here's the translation. May all sentient, why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from sublime happiness devoid of suffering? a really loaded question. Why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from sublime happiness devoid of suffering? The Tibetan for sublime happiness is Dewa Damba. Dewa Damba. Dewa Sukha. Joy. No, it's well sense of well-being, sense of happiness. But well-being, happiness, there's, there's mundane and there's super-mundane. There's a sense of well-being of just being very content on a beautiful sunny day. Uh, how do you feel? Very well. Sukha. So the word sukha appears in many, many contexts, from the banal to the sublime. But here it specifically says, Dewadamba, the sublime. Sublime has a connotation of sacred, holy, transcendent, something really quite extraordinary, of great, great value. So I think we can say that Dewadamba would be the Tibetan or, yeah, Sadsukha, I guess it would be, probably Sadsukha, sublime happiness would be the Sanskrit and Tibetan equivalents of eudaimonia, genuine happiness, true flourishing. But wait, this, this question, may we, why couldn't we never be parted from? He didn't say hedonic pleasure, because that could get really weird. Right? We've been through that, right? If you somehow so adjusted your mind that you were in a constant state of hedonic pleasure, <coughs> and your child dies of leukemia, your child dies of leukemia, and you say, boy, that's a shame, it's really, but I'm not going to let that get me down. You know, 
or a plague wipes out 10 million people. Gosh, that's terrible when that happens. But gosh, I do feel good. You know, there's something just a bit sick about that, isn't it? Like, I think you have brain damage. Something got into your left prefrontal cortex and it just isn't turning off. There's a time when that should just shut up. Because this, you know, have a heart for heaven's sake, you know, you're, you're, you're sick. I think now you need some other kind of drug to deactivate that pleasure center. So clearly that's not an ideal in Buddhism. Never has been. But, but, but may we never be pep- separated from sublime happiness. Well, then you know sublime happiness. And Paul Ekman, this wonderful dream team, Paul Ekman, Richie Davidson, Matthew Ricard and I, years ago we gathered together for a weekend at Paul's uh, vacation house out in Inverness, beautiful area just outside of San Francisco. And we sat and we wrote we, and two, days, two days of brainstorming. What is meant by sukha? Sukha. And this is what we came to. We wrote a paper. It was published in a scientific journal. But the consensus among all of us, a neuroscientist, psychologist, Matthew Ricard, wonderful Buddhist monk, traditional Buddhist monk, French, and then myself, neither a monk, nor a scientist, nor a neuroscientist, nor a psychologist. But you know, we had an empty slot. <laughs> so in any case, what we came to was that this sukha, this sukha, when we simply called it sukha, but what we really should have called it would be sadsukha, sublime happiness, sublime well-being, that it's not an emotion. That's a really important point, not an emotion. Hedonic pleasure, sure. The pleasure you get when you're practicing shamatha, and so on, sure, that's, that's definitely emotion. But this sadsukha, this sublime happiness, sublime sense of well-being is actually a bit more accurate. Sublime sense of well-being is not an emotion. So we see even the greatest beings, even the greatest beings, Avalokiteshvara, this iconic embodiment of compassion, weeping. You know, you know this mythopoetic, marvelous story of having as a tenth stage Aryabodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, the great Bodhisattva, striving for eons to alleviate the suffering of the world and doing great work, great work, great work. But then after some eons, taking stock, say, okay, how have I done? How much suffering is there left now that I've been working for eons and very effectively as a highly realized bodhisattva? How's it going? And he kind of looks out and he just sees like he's hardly made even a puncture in this ocean of suffering. So much is still self-perpetuating, self-perpetuating. And he just burst into tears, in dismay, in despair, thinking, what can ever be done. He burst into tears. Tears drop to the ground. And out of one of his tears arises Tara, the feminine embodiment of compassion. And she says, do not grieve or I will help you. Okay. So even the great bodhisattvas take that story any way you like, but it's a lovely story. It speaks to the heart. But even, but what is it? It's indicating multiple truths. And one of those is that even the highly realized beings can weep. Weep for sadness for the world. In the 8,000 verse Prajnaparamita, Perfection of Wisdom, I can't remember his name in Sanskrit, but I do remember it in Tibetan. Taktumu, the Bodhisattva, the always crying Bodhisattva. The always crying. Taktumu, always crying. Right? And he's a Bodhisattva. He doesn't need Prozac. He's not clinically depressed. He doesn't have a brain dysfunction. He doesn't have too low levels of dop- dopamine or imbalance in the serotonin levels. He is just, his heart is so wide open with no encasing to the suffering of the world that it said that that kind of characterized how he was, you know, just always weeping for the world. 
he's not looked down upon in the sutra. Like, get, get, you know, get it together, dude. You know, like, you're this imbalance there. No, you're kind of getting it. You're getting it, you know. So he's lauded as a great bodhisattva. but never being parted from sublime well-being. Well, of course, it has to be eudaimonia, genuine happiness, genuine state of well-being. But never being parted from, this means you must be going very deep. Never being parted from. And so I will simply interpret that now. We're in the midst of a Dzogchen retreat. So I think I have the freedom in this context to interpret that in a Dzogchen context. I'm not saying it's the right interpretation. I'm just saying that's interpretation, I'm going to give it for this retreat. How could that be possible? That when you're in meditation, well then, of course, why wouldn't you if you're highly realized, even if you achieve shamatha, let alone realization of emptiness and so on, why wouldn't you be experiencing sublime sense of well-being? But when you come out and you are witnessing with radiant, I mean, like x-ray vision, you're seeing suffering way beyond what ordinary people can witness. What they see is just fine. You're seeing it's just more suffering. Because you're seeing all levels, right? The evident suffering, suffering of change, all the way down to existential suffering. You're seeing it all simultaneously. X-ray vision to the universe. Seeing all dimensions of suffering. And so how are you coming out and maintaining, never being parted from, a sublime sense of well-being while you are vividly, piercingly aware of the dimensions, the depth and scope of suffering of the world? And moreover, not just the suffering, but the perpetuation by mental afflictions, craving, hostility, delusion. How are you maintaining that? And well, just there, an answer just leaps out at me. If you've just come out of your direct realization of Rikpa, and you're viewing all of reality, samsara and nirvana, from the perspective of Rikpa, then you don't have any choice as long as you're resting in that, and that's really now your one job, as a vidyadara, having realized Rigpa, your job now is simply to continue to sustain that ongoing identification, awareness, that self-awareness of your own awareness as pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, dharmakaya. And so you're viewing it from that perspective. And you remain, this is texture practice, you remain in between sessions, Free of activity and free of effort. With nothing to fix. Because Dzogchen remains Dzogchen. Now that could sound like you're the fool on the hill who, smi- who benignly smiles at all of the world with its absurd insanities, its ocean of sufferings, but you're so far above it. You know, you're the fool on the hill smiling benignly on this world of suffering and saying, oh, you children, how deluded are you? But that's not it. That's not it. You're you're without, you're, you're devoid of action, you remain inactivated, even in between sessions. Inactivated. In what way? Inactivated as a sentient being. No activities as a sentient being. You don't turn on the switch, even though you're not fully enlightened yet. You're, let's say, your vidyadara. You've just achieved the first of the four stages. A fully matured vidyadara. Dujum Lingba identified himself as such at one point in one of his texts. I am a fully matured vidyadara, which means he's up there comparable to the Mahayana path of the, the first Bhumi, 
the first Aryabhata, the, the very joyful, I think it's called Raptugawa, the first Aryabhata Bhumi, it's comparable to that of an Aryabhata on the first ground, having broken into the path of seeing, but with the special dimension. You've not merely realized emptiness, you realize Rigpa, non-conceptually, non-dually. You are viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa, which means you have an ongoing awareness of emptiness. But bear in mind now, you have something more. This is Ochen, this is not Sutrayana. And that is, you're viewing all these empty appearances as all 100% pure displays of equal equality of your own pristine awareness. You being in the center of a mandala, that's how everything appears to you. So you remain there, you rest there, you don't waver, you don't vacillate, you don't step outside of that perspective. That's your one practice, Buddhahood without meditation. There's nothing for you to do from your own side, just remain there. And so jadel, free of activity. And then surmeh, free of effort. There's nothing you need to achieve, to accomplish. And then jumamepa, nothing you need to alter in your mind stream, nothing you need to go out of your way now to, to fix, to repair, to improve, to purify. From your perspective, there's nothing to be done. Even though you're not yet a Buddha, you're a first stage vitidara, a fully matured vitidara. You will continue to mature, you continue to advance along, now leaping across, directly crossing over from bumi to bumi as you venture into the practices of the tutgel, the direct crossing over. But even there, you're not doing anything. I'm not going to go into that, but you're not doing anything. It's quite remarkable, but you're not doing anything in very special ways. But you're still not doing anything when you're practicing tutgal, which starts with the direct perception of ultimate reality. You're not doing anything, you're not striving, you're not modifying. At the same time, it may be like a Dingo Kenzu Rinpoche or Dujun Rinpoche or Solon Dalai Lama and so on. You may be dynamically active in the world from an outside perspective. Oh, his Holiness is almost 80 now, a globetrotter, traveling around like he's got the, the youthfulness, the zest, the vitality of a 30-year-old. Who's more active than he is? And yet, from the inside, such a being who's a vididara, motionless, still inactive. No activity of a sentient being. Doing everything and doing nothing. Doing everything that can possibly be done and doing nothing whatsoever as a sentient being. All activities spontaneously actualized, even as a vidyadhara, because you're taking the fruition as the path. The fruition as the path. And the Buddha's activities, the tinle, the enlightened activity, spontaneous, effortless, unpremeditated. Zen on steroids. Right? So now, when you are active and inactive, transforming and yet not transforming anything, manifesting enormous activities in the world, but effortlessly. Remaining there, your awareness remaining in its own place, and its own place is Dhammadhatu, indivisible from Dhammadhatu, your own primordial consciousness. Then you are never parted from sublime sense of well-being, the well-being, the immutable bliss of Buddha nature, of Dhammakaya, that is empty of suffering. Empty of suffering, but in really in an inconceivable way. 
because you are not aloof, you're not separate. You are vividly, profoundly aware of the suffering of the world because you have moved beyond dualistic grasping and you're perfectly aware of the suffering of the world and not in a dualistic fashion. Like, that's their problem. If you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, there is no dualistic grasping. There's no reification of subject, no reification of object, therefore no reification of the duality of subject and object. So you're intensely aware of the suffering of the world and the evils of the world. And that awareness arouses these spontaneous actualizations or manifestations of compassion. So already there are facsimiles in your very being of all three kayas. Again, you're taking the fruition as a path. They're not for later. Your, your view is already, your view, your perspective is already that of dharmakaya. Well, you can't orphan dharmakaya. You, know, you, can't have, you can't orphan it, not when it's fully manifest. And so your mind is dharmakaya and its essential nature is emptiness. Dhammadhatu. Right? It's, that's its mole. It's ranjin. Its manifest nature is luminosity. And its actualization is all-pervasive compassion. They're all occurring simultaneously. So, meanwhile, back here in Phuket, where we're trying to overcome the imbalances of excitation and laxity, (laughs) and imagining what would it be like to have my mind dissolve into the substrate consciousness, where you're experiencing non-conceptuality, and some of you have had spikes of non-conceptuality, a little faint foretaste of the emptiness of Dhammakaya. And some of you have had spikes of luminosity, of clarity, of brilliance. A little faint foretaste of the luminosity of Sambhokakaya. And some of you have had some spikes of bliss, joy, well-being. A little foretaste of the all-pervasive compassion of the Nimanakaya. And with one brief story. It was a wonderful experience back in 1992. Again with Richard Davidson, a team of marvelous neuroscientists. Richard Davidson, Francisco Varela, Cliff Saron, and Greg Simpson, the, uh, the four musketeers, four wonderful human beings and neuroscientists, good friends. And I was there again, not a scientist, but I could speak Tibetan. So with the blessing and the encouragement of His Holiness, we went up in the mountains above Dharmazala, we interviewed various yogis. You know something of the story, but I think really the culmination there, I, th- I think it clearly was the, the apex for the scientist. I guess it was. Well, I had many apexes there, but it was really a marvelous experience. Then we met with Geshe Yeshe Topten, Gentudopla, very well-known, renowned, and revered Gulupa Geshe, who had been uh, up there for something like 30 years. Occasionally he'd come out to Tsongkhapa Institute, Italy, other, other places, and then he'd go back into retreat. He was rather old. I was about to say he was about my age, which means he wasn't that old, but, you know, he was not young. And one of the scientists, I can't remember who, because I was just the interpreter, and I'd been up there, so the, the yogis knew me, so they, I don't know, they knew me. Uh, but one of the scientists asked really good questions. Because they sensed just by his presence, by his smile, by his warmth. And he agreed to do, collaborate with him. He put on the EEG cap, he, whatever they wanted. They, he looked at videos, he did everything they wanted. 
Um, and they really sense this is a very special human being. This man is, at the very least, deeply kind. There's a tremendous warmth, a kindness, a goodness here. And it was kind of plain for everybody to see. I, all the scientists picked it up. They were very moved by it, of course, as I was too. And they asked him to Dublin, when you experience suffering, because now they knew they'd found an expert, this guy. He doesn't just talk about it. He's embodying it. When you experience compassion, do you feel sad? Do you feel sorrow at the world's grief, the suffering, the causes of suffering, and so forth? Do you feel sorrow? And he said, no. No. Before the emergence of compassion, there's empathy. As you attend to the suffering of others, the causes of suffering of others, attend to them. As you attend to them, and your heart opens to them, and yes, you feel sadness, like the ever-weeping one. Yes, you feel sadness. But that's empathy. That's empathy. That's not yet an aspiration. It's a feeling with the sense that suffering has no owner. Therefore, it moves you as if it were your own. But then some vision arises. I'm filling in a little bit, but I know that this is exactly in accordance with what he said, because I'm just teaching Buddha Dharma. Uh, and that is a vision arises. Yes, there's a massive amount of suffering in the world. The heart is moved. One feels the grief, the suffering of the world. One senses, one empathizes with the underlying causes of such suffering. But then a vision arises. There's a possibility of freedom. That is, to the question, why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? You have an answer. They could be. One by one, they could be. And you see there's light at the end of the tunnel. You see there's possibility. And then that, it lifts you. It lifts you out of what could become a quagmire of despair and dismay and hopelessness. It lifts you, almost like you're levitating. Your awareness is levitating, going to the light and seeing there's a real possibility here for freedom. And when you see that, and you see the suffering, you see the possibility, you're connecting the dots, right? There's the suffering, there's a possibility of liberation, and you're seeing that there are causes and conditions that could lift sentient beings out of suffering to freedom from suffering, and when you see that, then aspiration arises. Perhaps even great aspiration, great resolve, perhaps great compassion, when, and when the immeasurable compassion or I'm sure in his case it was more than that, as great compassion arises, there's a tremendous courage, a vision, and even a joyfulness that arises there. When you see something can be done, and I'm doing it, I'm doing all that I possibly can do, there's satisfaction in that, a sense of well-being in that. I'm doing all that can be done for the time being. I'm, it's pedal to the metal. Every moment I'm doing all that can be done. You've got to take satisfaction in that. There has to be some well-being in that. You can't wait that it'll be better later. This is enough for now. This is it. And so then you rise above the sorrow. So, then you're rising to a sense of well-being that does not fade when you encounter the suffering and the evils of the world. It's there always. You really can never be parted from it. But then, final note, I think I said that before, but you know me. Final note is then the question is, why couldn't all sentient beings, right? Why couldn't? Again, we've already noted, accepted or don't, that all sentient beings have Buddha nature, the potential for enlightenment, the primary cause is already there. And that's really time to bring in wisdom. 
not just some formulaic answer, you know, but some wisdom, and make it in the 20, 21st century. I mean, that's where we are. We don't have any choice. And so, what would be needed? Because clearly, all we need is cooperative conditions. It's like having a big, big sack full of really good grain. You know that every seed is really, really good. And you've got a great big field there, but it has rocks, and it's not been tilled, and not been fertilized, and no water, and so forth. And you go, okay, okay, okay. Now, here's a whole sack full of seeds that could be giving a bountiful harvest and giving rise to more and more and more. Uh, and there's the field now. Okay, now what's needed? And you just start thinking practically. Tractor, mulch, fertilizer, irrigation system, and so forth and so on. And you say, okay, now you're not feeling sad at poverty. You're not feeling sad that you just got a bag of ungerminated seeds. You're really kicking into gear. And you see, that, oh, well, something really can be done. And so why couldn't we, all sentient beings, never be parted from sublime happiness devoid of suffering? Well, you need the cooperative conditions. It'd be very helpful. It'd be actually indispensable to have some conducive places for people to practice. That they're not always just struggling against their environment and the people in their environment. Always being dragged down, eroded. Always in a state of tension and friction with everybody around them who's going in the opposite direction. It'd be really helpful to have a conducive environment. It'd be very helpful as a cooperative condition to have like-minded, like-minded people, shared vision, shared practices. Group, group energy, that would be really helpful. It would be actually indispensable, too, to have not just one or two, but as many as possible qualified spiritual guides. So when people are inspired to seek such well-being, that they receive all the guidance they need. And, but that means not just people who know how to talk well or have studied well. People who actually know what they're talking about. Because that gives more inspiration than anything else. When you say, aha, it's like if you, have, if you have a really serious chronic illness and then you come to somebody else who had the same illness and you can see they're in sparkling good health and they've got medicine. That's a lot better than an advertisement about how good their medicine is. Because you say the medicine's good and here's the therapy and here's the treatment, but man, are you healthy. You know? And then the more like you, that person is. If, that, if you're kind of old and frail, and this person was like 20 and you know, looked like an Olympic athlete, you can say, well, that was good for you, but I'm not sure that, how that's going to work out for me. You know? Or if just somehow there's a real sense of distance that, well, yeah, you're really healthy, but of course you're a Tibetan tuku. Not, you know, like me. Or you're a Kembo, you're a Geshe, you're a Lama, you're a His Holiness or something, but not like me. That's, then you kind of want to worship, but you feel, you know, just kind of Please carry me along, because you're healthy and I'm not, but man, I'm so unlike you. you know, I don't think there's much hope for a person like me. I, didn't, I wasn't raised with Dharma from the age of three. That would have helped, but I wasn't. Too late. So the more like you, the better. If you can see somebody really like you, who has really clearly manifested such genuine well-being. Of course, the most inspiring, if you looked into the mirror and you saw such a person, now that would be really inspiring. So think about the cooperative conditions as we go through. Now with very few words, the meditation will be largely silent. I'll just, I'll just give the phrases, because the rest of them you can fill in the blanks. But really, we're going to linger on the first one. I invite people listening by podcast, people listening here. It's time to be imaginative, to move into the realm of possibility, 
Because this, once again, is an aspiration and a resolve, not simply taking delight in others' virtues, their joys, and so forth. What could be done in this year, 2014? What's the best possible that could be done? To bring about the cooperative conditions, the environment, the companions, the guides, and so forth. To do everything we possibly can to provide the conditions for everyone around us to never be parted from sublime happiness, devoid of suffering. There's a meditation. So, we'll start with the chanting, go on from there. Yamse Guru Pema Siri Hong Hong Oye Yuki Nukchan San Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Choki Mudunye Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datu Jinge Lapche Shaksus Guru Pema Siri Hong Hong again Yuki Nuksam San Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Choki Mudunye Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Dantuki Jinge Lapche Shaksus Guru Pema Siddhi
Omahum Bebegoro Bemesirihum. to switch postures, please do so now. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Your awareness, above all, resting in its own nature.
And then let's pose the first of four phases of the practice, now raising this very familiar question. Why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from sublime happiness, devoid of suffering? What would be needed to enable that to occur?
and seeing the possibility you arouse the aspiration. May they never be parted. With each outbreath, you may imagine once again rays of light flowing out in all directions. Sending out this benevolent aspiration for everyone, without exception. May each one never be parted from a sublime state of well-being devoid of suffering.
aspiration leads to resolve. I shall make it so that they are never parted from sublime happiness devoid of suffering. And as you arouse this resolve, this pledge, with each outbreath, you may imagine light emanated in all directions. As you venture into this realm of possibility, imagine each sentient being struck by this light from your heart, actually finding such sublime well-being, such sublime bliss, tapping into such depths that they're never parted and never fall back into any of the three dimensions of suffering, their awareness rooted in primordial consciousness, nothing other than primordial consciousness.
finally we call for blessings, calling upon the Lama and the deity. Please bless me. That I may be able to do so. With each in-breath, imagine the light of blessings converging in from all sides. And upon your body, feeling your body converging upon your heart. And with every out-breath, imagine a cascade of light flowing out in all directions. Imagining that this aspiration and this resolve have been fulfilled. That it is true here and now. View with pure vision from the center of your mandala. mind, Amakaya, empty of inherent nature, your luminous form, the manifest nature of the Sambhogakaya, and the lights flowing out, blissful, all-pervasive compassion. Like the reflections of the moon and water, effortlessly serving the needs of every sentient being until each one is free. Each one is never parted from sublime happiness.
release all activities of the mind. Release the mind itself into space with no object and rest in awareness. Meetings will be about 15 minutes late. Enjoy your day. <laughs>